Okay. I had a I had sort of a title floating around in my mind for this talk this evening. I sometimes just work from a title and then kind of think what I'm going to talk about. And I had to kind of two titles for this, which is where are we trying to get to, or living without thought of tomorrow. The second one I'll kind of explain as I go through, and hopefully it will become clear. The first part um, is, I think, partly a corrective to much of the way I think mindfulness is, is necessarily spoken about um, in the present day, which is basically as a curative for ills, for the problems that we have, for the dukkha that Christina spoke about, for the for the, I don't know, the, the second arrows. I was speaking with my group this afternoon, I said it's not so much a second arrow, it's like 50 of them. <laughs> you, know, you get the one thing that hits you and then 50 other things come in as well. <clears throat> so I think probably the Buddha's underestimating things just slightly here. But I'm sure you're all aware and all, have all had stress to you um, that actually... The development of mindfulness in the tradition has always been in relationship to this problem of dukkha. And I think almost necessarily we become a little bit dukkha fixated. We concentrate on that, we concentrate on the problems. And what we tend to lose sight of sometimes is some of the other benefits that dukkha bring. Sorry, that mindfulness brings instead of (laughs) Dukkha has a whole host of benefits which I haven't talked about, but I'll talk about right. <laughs> that mindfulness brings um, when we start to practice. Um, but before I go into that, I want to start with that question in a way. Where are we trying to get to? Whether you be somebody who's studying and practicing MBCT, MBSR, any of the mindfulness-based applications in your own personal practice, I'm not talking about what you teach, but in your own personal practice, or perhaps are a little bit more committed to, I don't know, the traditional Buddhist path, however you might perceive it. Where are are we trying to get to in this? I think the quick answer, as far as I'm concerned, is nowhere. We're not actually trying to get anywhere. The only place we're trying to get to is where we are already. Trying to get to where we are with an altered perception and an altered way of cognizing uh, our present moment experience. When we start speaking about mindfulness, well, you know, I always feel I'm sort of stuck with this word, mindfulness. as many of you will know, it was a word that was coined originally in 1881, um, derived from basically the Book of Common Prayer it comes out of, and some references in the Gospels. And it was lifted by early translators to try and describe this, this, uh, this dimension of Buddhist experience, which was in the original language termed sati. And so they coined this word mindfulness, or used, uh, actually out of this context, they used this word mindfulness to describe what was going on. And it's been a useful word. Um, However, it's not terribly reflective sometimes of what it actually means. 
And probably the nearest translation is not one single word, but a phrase. And many of you have heard me say this before, which is present moment awareness or present moment recollection. Yeah, so obviously there's a huge emphasis on this present moment. The present moment recollection, I think, is is useful way of, of looking at this because with embedded within this word sati is the notion of memory. I think Christina already mentioned this. There's this notion of memory. So if there is this notion of memory, there is obviously, it's there as something as a corrective, or somehow as a corrective to something that's going on in our ordinary life. It doesn't take a great brain to work that one out. Our state of ordinary living is a process of forgetfulness a lot of the time. What is this whole mindfulness embedded into? It's embedded into a path traditionally, obviously not within the mindfulness-based applications because these are very specific, but this whole notion of mindfulness is embedded or present moment recollection, present moment awareness, is embedded in a path which is dedicated to waking up, to wakefulness. So we have two notions here, two dimensions of this practice. One extremely important dimension, which is this present moment recollection, which is to actually move us from that process of forgetfulness. And I don't think it's too difficult to see. Actually, it's allied to this process of waking up, which is what the whole of the path, in a sense, is dedicated to. I've always taken the, you know, the figure of the Buddha as um, an interesting figure, not historical in the sense of all the stuff we read about him is true or anything of that sort, but simply the name and the title Buddha in, in itself is a challenge to us because the word is derived, and I won't go into the derivation, but it's derived from something in the original language which means one who has woken up. Yeah. So it's one who's achieved this goal of waking up. What has he woken up to? He's woken up to the way things really are. That's yeah, not as I would like them to be. Yeah, I'm sure we'd all love the world to be the way that we fantasize about it. Um, but it just doesn't happen that way. So it's waking up to the way things really are. And the way things really are, we was summed up actually in one of the questions, and I think Christina related it this afternoon, which is the way things really are is they are dukkha, they are impermanent, and they are not self. This is what we wake up to. This is the insight that was spoken about in response to that question. It's the insight that is generated in relation to being able to those, live those things. Now, this is not, in a sense, simply waking up to something which is futural, but waking up to something which is now. Yeah? So we're waking up in the present moment. This is what the practice of mindfulness in a more traditional context is dedicated to, is this process of waking up in the moment, waking up now, not at some distant point in the future. Whenever I hear the word path, I almost see, sort of hear a route march along the path from A to B, you know, from unawakening to awakening, from unenlightenment to enlightenment. 
You know, this is not actually how it is. The process of waking up is actually more, strangely, it's almost an oxymoron, a path that doesn't lead you anywhere other than back to where you are already. So when we start talking about the goal of mindfulness, the goal of this path, the goal of what we're engaged in, in any kind of meditative practice, it's really to come back to this place, to come back to where we are. And why, I might ask as a question at this stage, why would we bother? Why would we bother to do that? Well, that would be a very long story to tell tonight, but I'm going to kind of pick out some dimensions of it. We come back, obviously, because of the, in a way, the story that the Buddha is in getting us to investigate in relationship to our own implication, the way that we're implicated in the generation of problems for ourselves. Distress, disease, I think it was the way Christina put it last night. Certainly dissatisfaction. How are we implicated in the generation of those that makes us, in some sense, want not to be here? Not to want to be in this place. This is often what happens, isn't it? We, We are distressed, wounded, hurt, dissatisfied, and we long for some other place. I think it was the poet Rimbaud once said, life is always elsewhere. Life is elsewhere. We look elsewhere for it, other than where we are. And the Buddha was certainly teaching very much about coming back to where we are with a changed perception of where we are. So we talk about the alleviation of suffering and distress and dissatisfaction and disease, disease and all of these things. We can talk about that, but ultimately it was to come back to life with a renewed vision about what it meant to live here. What it meant to be in this world with potentialities, uh, to not be at an end. Yeah. In other words, not to have kind of reached our final conclusion about who and what we are. With a renewed vision about those possibilities because we have the potentialities which is associated with being not a thing in this world, but a process. Yeah. And the moment we sit still, despite the difficulty of that, you know, the poet T.S. Eliot in one of his poems says, you know, teach us to sit still. You know, that's what we're coming back to, this beginning to sit still. When we begin to sit still, what do we discover? We discover the mind in turmoil. We discover process. We discover change. We discover all sorts of things, but what we don't discover usually is something static, something fixed within us. Yeah. So we're opening and we learn to open to the process that we are. 
And this is very important. This is one of the great discoveries. If we pursue this path, I don't say it reveals, in a sense, itself automatically, but it's something that starts to reveal itself the more we pursue this path, the more we investigate, the more we bring mindful attitudes to our practice, but also to our ordinary lives. We learn to, in some senses, wake up this moment. And if you think about that as a metaphor, that the Buddha, if he is an awakened one, and I've shared this many, many times in this room, if the Buddha is an awakened one, it means that you and I are somnambulists. We are sleepwalkers walking through life. Yeah? And in our sleepwalking, we often keep running into the same things again and again and again. Yeah? No wonder we've got bruises. No wonder we feel tender from time to time because we don't actually wake up. So the kind of image I'm trying to give to you, even at this early stage in the talk, is one of waking up to where we are and discovering something anew. We're not just discovering the problems. Yes, we do do that. I mean, I don't want to underemphasize that. This is a very important dimension of what we're engaged in in this practice. But it's not simply about that. It's waking up to being able to see, taste, touch, smell, and be here in a transformed way. This is very important because if it was just about, I don't know, dealing with the problems, then I think it could quite rapidly become quite disheartening. But on the other side of looking at the problems, examining them realistically, the kinds of things that Christina was talking about and Jenny has talked about and I have talked about over these last few days, when we start to wake up to them, what we discover is something about life. Yeah? We discover, for example, that, as I say, we are not at an end. The, um, <laughs> one of the founders of America, Benjamin Franklin, once had this wonderful phrase, which he said that most people were dead by the age of 25. They just weren't buried till 70. <laughs> yeah. Now, <laughs> I think we can get a sense of what that means is actually what we do is we start to close down life at a fairly early stage. We start to block our possibilities, our ways of perceiving. We start to create ourselves an identity. You know, we slip into an identity. Now, those identities might change over the years, but you kind of slip into an identity, and that identity is a kind of carapace, is a shell which we hide in. Um, and therefore, often, a bit like a tortoise, you know, occasionally pokes its head out, looks around, and then retreats back in again. Yeah. Now, what the whole process of mindfulness is meant to do is, in a sense, make us initially aware of some of these processes, and then to start to transform our perceptions about what we encounter in our daily lives. And I can only put this in a metaphor. And the metaphor would be suddenly, I don't know, this kind of changeover you have from living a very monochrome life, 
to suddenly life becoming brighter. I don't say becoming easier, because that's really not necessarily the case. I don't think, in my own reading of the early Buddhist texts, that the Buddha is offering consolations. He's not saying, do this and you'll pop off to Buddhist heaven. He's not saying that. He's saying, do this and you can deal with the difficulties that life throws at you, the vicissitudes, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You can deal with them a lot more effectively and that don't block a fundamental sense that we often lose, and there's a word, it's actually not used even that frequently in the original language. It's a lovely word in in Pali, it's called abhuta, which actually means wonder, a sense of wonder. How many of us have felt we've lost somehow over the course of our lives a sense of wonder about things? Not just about this particular thing, but about just the whole process of being alive with its difficulties. And this is one of the things I think the Buddha is making us aware of, that we can recapture that sense of wonder. When we begin to break the bounds of habit, when we begin to break the the bonds that tires, and it's very interesting, I'm not going to go into details about this, but it's very interesting that the Buddha often uses terms like being bound, being tied, being shackled to something. And this is bursting those bonds, moving into not what I would say, because this is not what it's about. I think it would be unrealistic to say suddenly somehow life is going to, you know, the bad things are not going to happen to you. You're not going to get sick. You're certainly not going to do this nasty stuff of dying. Yeah. Yeah. This would be completely unrealistic. But it brings us into an informed relationship with those things that rather than being, in some sense, life-negating, actually add something into our lives. The Buddhist tradition, in its history... And all of, the, you know, all of the Buddhist cultures I've ever lived in have always, in a sense, really focused on the sheer existentiality of mortality. You know, really importantly, they've focused on this. Not out of a morbid sense of brooding over it. This wasn't something to be kind of, I don't know, just morbidly sitting there thinking about and you know, just contemplating your end. This was not the point about it. In fact, in- interestingly enough, that when I lived in Tibetan culture, Tibetans have this phrase, which even just ordinary Tibetans, I'm not talking about monastics or anything like that, you know, any of these figures uh, who are in the, in the big monasteries and that in, in Tibet, um, but just ordinary Tibetans would say to each other, and they would go things like, and it goes like this roughly. It says, you know, one thing is absolutely certain, death. One thing is absolutely uncertain, when. <laughs> then they would fall around laughing. <laughs> yeah. Because this wasn't something to be um, simply, as I say, dwelt over in a way which was morbid or, you know, you know just created sadness. This was something that opened up, again, possibilities. And I don't know if we always see that. 
that actually our, the, very, the very fact of our mortality should open up to us the possibilities of our life now, yeah, of living. And I want to read you a couple of passages out of somebody who went through this whole process simply because they suddenly discovered that they had an incurable disease, an incurable illness. And this particular person, she was a, um, a presenter on Swedish television. Um, some of you might have heard of her, somebody called Ulla Karin Lindquist. And uh, she wrote a, a kind of biography of her last days before she died. And a couple of them, I think, are very moving and actually, in a way, celebrate some of the things that I'm talking about. Um, but from the point of view of knowing, knowing really very clearly that your time is limited. Um, and there's a couple of passages I just want to just share with you here. She had a form of incurable motor neurone disease, which was called ALS, um, which was a progressive loss of all motor functioning in the body. And she says this, I'm going to die of ALS if nothing unpredictable happens. There are two roads that I can take. One is, down, one is to lie down and be bitter and wait. The other is to make something worthwhile of this misfortune, to see it in a positive light, however banal that might sound. My road is the second. I have to live in the immediate present. There is no bright future for me. There is only a bright present. Children live like that, only for the present, nothing coming afterwards. Therefore, I laugh like a child uncontrollably. The whole of my adult life, I have thought, I will be all right in the end. I have to do this first, then it will be all right. I'm sure that's a story we've all told ourselves at some point in time. But this way of thinking for me is no longer possible. The strange thing is that nowadays, now that I am terminally ill, I feel huge and great moments of joy, such as I've hardly ever felt in my life before. Happiness has never, ever been a constant for me, but now it is becoming one. That's why I laugh. And if it has anything to do with my paralysis, then it's a blessing that comes with the disease. Yeah. And the other passage, which again, I think, connects with mindfulness in a very, very dynamic way, is a conversation she has with one of her young children, uh, her young child called Gustav. She says, Gustav comes and stands by, beside my, my desk. Do you, do you write all the time, mummy? It takes a long time, I reply. I only write with two fingers now. Mommy, I'm a miniature human being. What? You're big and I'm little. No, Gustav, you're big. You have the whole of your life in front of you, the future. Now it's me who's getting smaller. Mummy, every second is a life, he says gently. What did you say? Every second is a life. Where have you heard that? Nowhere. I just made it up. And then he carries on. Actually, mommy, you have hundreds of thousands of lives left. Every second is a life, I echo. 
Now, the reason why I read that is not to make you sad here, but to actually connect you with something which I think is really important. In our process of not being mindful, we dwell in the forgetfulness of that possibility that every second is a life. Yeah? We lose that. We lose that sense because what do we do in our forgetfulness? It's something we constantly recall, isn't it, in our meditation practice, in calling ourselves back to this body, this breath, at this moment. Yeah, we call ourselves back to that process of being here, alive with our senses at this moment. But where are we usually? Yeah, what's the most common experience of our being here? usually, in our meditation practice. I would suggest, I mean, I leave it for you to decide, that mostly we're out there in the future. Yeah? Mostly we're out there planning, obsessed with our projects. Yeah? Now, I'm not saying that our projects are not interesting sometimes, that they're not important, because obviously they are. But we lose the beauty of what it means to be here, to be here right now with the possibilities that we have, with the senses that we have. We lose that life. Yeah? We lose that life that's happening right now. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. You know, I often hear people say, you know, particularly when I've been introducing perhaps beginners to meditation practice, well, doesn't it get rather boring looking at the breath? Yeah. It's an interesting comment, isn't it? Doesn't it get boring looking at the breath? What is the breath? The breath is our life. Every breath that you take is unique. Every breath that you take is a unique breath. In a sense, it's unrepeatable. Yeah. It won't come back again. Yeah, that particular breath. And I know that might sound, hopefully it doesn't, it might sound banal. But that's the reality of it. And we lose that preciousness of the moment by being obsessed. I'm not saying, again, please don't hear me as saying we should just cut all this stuff out of thinking about the future and planning and that. But we become obsessed, fixated on that. And I would kind of remind you of the little Tibetan phrase, yeah, there is mortality, but when? We don't know. And we lose so much as we project ourselves into the future. Or alternatively, of course, we're back there in the past with our resentments, with our problems, with our accusations, with our fears sometimes. Yeah, just reliving all that stuff. And again, sometimes that might be important, but we become obsessed and fixated on it. Yeah. There's the possibility in this moment, which again was very, made very clear to me in my very early days in practicing um, in Tibetan Buddhism, which was my first training, of what it means to be here right now, what it means to have the possibilities of, of being the human being that you are in this moment. And I had this very uh, interestingly described to me. 
um, through a scheme that some of you might have heard of. And I kind of, I'll go through this very, very quickly. But it's a schema that's used often to describe so-called rebirth. I'm not going to get into that, but I just want to describe the little things or the little sections of something you might have seen around. Has anybody seen the Wheel of Life? Yeah, this diagram that's often used in, in teaching aspects of Buddhism. It's usually described, sometimes it's kind of carved up in different ways, but the, the, the normal version and the way it's carved up is into, kind of, into a number of sections, six sections, basically. Um, and you have six particular um, descriptions, some of which you can recognize. And these are meant... Actually, I, mean, I might as well say this right at the beginning before I even describe. These are meant to be, in one understanding, psychological descriptions. And so we have a realm which is called a godlike realm. And the godlike realm is um, of people who appear to have everything, um, appear to have very privileged lives, have everything they want. And then you have another little realm, which is another section of aspiring gods, ones who want to be, you know, want to be the gods. Interestingly, in the, in the, in the pictorial representation of it, it has what's called a wish-fulfilling tree. The roots are in the ones who want to be the gods, and all the fruits are in the gods' realms. Yeah. I mean, I think it kind of fits a kind of nice social description, really, doesn't it? In many ways. Uh, then there's a human realm, and I'll come back to that in a second. There's a human realm. These are kind of very mythological, aren't they? Nothing we can recognize as yet. There's an animal realm as well, an animal realm. And the animal realm is considered to be the realm of blind instinct, persecution, great suffering, and pain. I just think you've got to look around and see what's going on. It's just in human exploitation of animals to see you know, that holds you know, a little degree of accuracy in terms of its description. Um, but it's surrendered to blind instinct as well. And then you have a, a realm of endless desire. These little gods in their, um, their entitled predators. And they have these little skinny necks in the iconography. And little pinhole mouths, enormous bellies, and an insatiable appetite. And you can see what happens, can't you? you know, every bit of food causes them immense suffering because they want more they can never get enough and then you have a hell realm oh hell realms <laughs> but this is interesting because in the hell realm what you have is a god of death and he holds up a mirror and everybody judges themselves by what they see in the mirror so the punishments that are meted out in hell are meted out in the way that you see yourself in that so, you know, kind of these are considered, as I said, I didn't want to kind of get into a guessing game, but these were considered to be psychological realms. And then you have this human realm here. And the human realm was the realm of the possibility of waking up, the possibility of developing kindness and compassion and generosity and all of these virtues and that. And... I mean, I think I was only about age 17, 18 when I first came across this. And I was talking to the teacher who was teaching me. And I said to him uh, initially, because I kind of figured out it was psychology, psychological. And I said to him, are these kind of descriptions of various types of people? And he looked at me rather grumpily and said, no, 
This is a picture of you on one day. <laughs> and I hope you can see what that means. <laughs> but then what I thought was the really interesting part was, and this comes back to really the theme of what I'm talking about, he said, out of that day, how often are you human? How often are you just following instinct? How often have you got a kind of elevated ego that thinks it's got everything, you're fine? How much are you striving? How often are you just giving yourself hell? Abandoned to blind desire? Yeah, never being able to get enough to satisfy you? Yeah, and so it was interesting having it turned round as a question, as a possibility of living. So when we talk about this path, it's not aspiring to be anything other or to get anywhere else other than to where you are and perhaps to coming to your potentiality to become much more human. But in the sense that isn't just the human side of being caught by habitual patterns. And the waking up that the Buddha speaks of is waking up. But it's also waking up from the bonds that tie us to these habitual patterns. Yeah, it's actually freeing ourselves from that. And we can see this in ordinary life. I think this is the important part about it. With mindfulness, when we begin to sometimes realize some of the patterns to which we are tied, which decrease our sensitivity, which decrease our responsiveness, when we release those, we feel like we've been released from shackles, even if it's only just a small glimpse of it. Just a little glimpse of... of where I'm shackled, where I'm what I'm tied to, what are the patterns? Yeah. In fact, this is one of the main meanings of even this big Buddhist term, which everybody has kind of mystical ideas about, which is nirvana, which is to be unbound, not to be bound by anything, yeah. not to be bound by those habitual patterns. Because those habitual patterns, as I'm sure you're all well aware, and you know, if you're training, and these, your teachers will have talked to you about this, these patterns of being bound are reactive, and they decrease the possibility of genuine responsiveness. They decrease the possibility, actually, again, coming to one of the questions this afternoon, of genuine ethical responses. Yeah. Even with a list of ethical prescriptions, they become yet another set of habits. Yeah. They don't increase our sensitivity, our awareness towards the other, to the other person, to the non-human other, even. Yeah. So when we start to talk about mindfulness, and we talk about this radical change in perception, we can talk about its ways and abilities of just counteracting, but we often lose sight of what it wakes us up to, the possibilities of living in different ways. 
in response to one of the questions again, I mean, it's, it's interesting having that question and answer session this afternoon. One of the things I was saying about, you know, the Buddhist path is, you know, and this is very much within the Buddhist path, is, is choosing how you want to live. And I'm sure we would all like to do that, whether you want to be involved in this at all or not. And this is nothing about, um, you know, the path of mindfulness doesn't necessarily lead or equate with just the path of Buddhism. The path of mindfulness is open to all. It doesn't matter what. But it still involves evaluation and choice of how I want to live. Yeah. How do I want to live? What do I want to live in a way that's tied to the habits bound to confusion? Yeah. To desire? And to aversion? Yeah. Or... Do I want to live in a way that is much more responsive in terms of understanding, in terms of kindness and friendliness? Yeah, this big thing that's lauded. And of course, in terms of, you know, of overcoming everything that we have as the psychology which is bound to these elements of the greed, aversion and delusion. Yeah. And so we base ourselves in this understanding. We base ourselves in this compassion and friendliness. We base ourselves in a completely different way of being in this world. Yeah. But that's not going some other place, is it? That's waking up to where we are now waking up to that possibility that it is for you now. And that doesn't mean, again, that we have to see this as a, I don't know, something that um, can't occur in this moment, because it can occur in this moment. That's what mindfulness gives you. I can give you lots of technical stuff as to why this occurs, but I don't feel this is the job of this, this talk this evening. You know, I can talk about the way it cleans up perception. You know, the way it you know, strips out the habit patterns of perception and allows us to see things anew and give you all the technical terms for that. But I'm, that's really, as I say, not the point of what I'm trying to get across to you. I'm just trying to get across to you this evening that this is a possibility, that the world becomes much more vivid, it becomes much more wondrous in that movement into... I'll use the old word, into this mindful attitude towards life. Yeah. It makes us aware of the difficulties. But of course, the difficulties themselves are transformed when we become responsive and not reactive to them. Yeah. When we're not bound to, say, a very tight habit pattern of aversion, of dislike of wanting to move away. If you really want to keep on feeding your aversion, you know, just keep on having the habit pattern. <laughs> it really does it really well. You know, it keeps it in place. Yeah. Waking up to what is going on in the taste of something, in the texture of something, in that feeling, I know it's probably become, for those again in training, slightly hackneyed to say, well, of course, you feel the points of contact. 
you feel the touch of the clothing on your body. You feel the, you know, the air on your skin. And this can sound very kind of stereotyped and you know, this is patterned. But what would it mean to wake up to that for that moment? That's all those, you know, those, those guidances are really offering the opportunity, isn't it? To wake up to that at that moment, to actually experience this. The, the author, Virginia Woolf, in her diaries, it actually ended up being published as a separate book, but she spoke about moments of being. Yeah, wonderful term, moments of being. And you'd think they might be kind of big metaphysical moments or mystical moments or whatever they were. No, they weren't. They were really ordinary. You know? And one of the ones that really sticks in my mind because it's, in a sense, so congruent with what we talk about in, you know, in, you know, in Buddhist ways of teaching mindfulness and certainly in MBCT and MBSR, it was waking up. Um, and she said this was, this was her moment of being, waking up to that moment of the touch of cool water on skin on a hot day. Yeah. So ordinary, isn't it? Yeah. So ordinary, yet it, we can... That moment of richness, that moment of enhancement of our sensory experience, and we don't have to cling to this, that moment of richness can pass us by completely. We can lose it. And so what we spend our lives is in, is in our forgetfulness of being. Our forgetfulness of being here. Often because we are tied to those projects in the future or tied to what is in the past. Not to deny the strength and the power and the importance sometimes of that, but to be doing that constantly is somehow to lose our lives, to become slightly dead. Yeah? You know, it's always, you know, particularly if we think about this one, you know, the big thing that's often talked about in our societies these days, happiness. Well, happiness is always out there in the future. It's futural. Yeah. The Buddhist response, and the classic Buddhist response is happiness is here now, if you wake up to it. But it's not in some vision or, I don't know, fantasy of what happiness is, but it's in our embodied sensory embeddedness in this world. It's not somewhere else. It's right here, right now. There's a lovely story in the Zen. The Zen tradition actually has lots of stories which try to exemplify these things about being in the moment. And there's a lovely story in the Zen tradition of a, a Zen master who's dying. You know, he's in the process of dying and his pupils, his disciples have gathered around him. And um, one of the disciples said to one of the others, you know, what can we do for the master in his, in his you know, last few hours? And one of them says, I remember he loved a particular cake. And so they send out one of the disciples to go and buy this cake and he comes back. And what happens is they give the master the piece of cake, he eats the cake, and then he dies, having uttered just a few words. And um, the disciples go up to the one who'd heard the words and said, to him, and what, was, what was the master's final teaching? What was his 
What was his final teaching? Expecting something really big here, you know. What was the final teaching? And the disciple said, he said it was wonderful cake. <laughs> yeah, that's being in the moment, isn't it? <laughs> you know, and the, the, in the humorousness of the story is the point that it's about being there. Just, in a sense, inhabiting our ordinariness in an extraordinary way. Yeah? Isn't that something that we often lose, that sense of the extraordinary in the ordinary, in what is going on for us right now? Yeah. And so when we enter into the path of mindfulness, so we're not just overcoming problems. Yes, of course, you know, in a way what we're doing is starting to overcome the problems and starting also to clear the ground. But we also have, a, have to have... A, I think an awareness there is also something there's great joy to be gained in this as well something you know we, again we can become so fixated on the misery that we miss out on those joyful elements we miss out on the play of light in the trees we miss out on you know on Virginia Woolf's moment of being you know, we miss out on the just the the taste of, of the cake. Yeah. Coming back to that phrase I started off with, uh, the uh, title perhaps of a talk, which is living as if there was no tomorrow. Sometimes it's useful. I mean, actually in English, it has a very pejorative sense, doesn't it? Living as if there's no tomorrow. It kind of indicates recklessness. Yeah. Those who are, I don't know, uh, who are really thinking and really concerned with their futures will constantly be thinking about the future. Well, living as if there is no tomorrow is actually perhaps quite a good thing occasionally, is what I'm saying. And actually mindfulness, when we really come back to the home of mindfulness on a regular basis, is actually living without that not in terms of there are no consequences of what we do or anything like that, but we're living here now and really beginning to explore the place where we are. We've all, as I'm sure, you know, as I've said earlier on, thought that happiness is some other place. It's in you know, the, the acquisitions. You know, I'm going to be happy if I get... If I get the right job, I'm going to be happy. If I get the right partner, I'm going to be happy. If I get the, the right dog, I'm going to be happy. <laughs> Actually, you probably stand more of a chance with that. <laughs> um, cynical, aren't I? <laughs> but no, seriously, you know, we, we put it out there onto something else. We ask for the world... Um, and we make demands on the objects around us to make us happy where the happiness comes from the appreciation of where we are, not where we're not. We're always looking for ourselves somewhere we're not rather than where we are. So when we enter into this path of mindfulness, 
be it in an entirely secular way or even in a Buddhist way, we enter in a path of discovering and really beginning to explore just this place. Yeah. So where are we getting? We're getting nowhere. Because we're not going anywhere. Yeah. We're not getting to some metaphysical unreality where happiness is out there. We're not getting to anywhere other than this place. I'm sure this is a quote many of you will know. Um, but I'm kind of starting to draw this to a conclusion. And I want to just read this to you. This comes from T.S. Eliot, which I'm sure many of you will know. We shall not cease from exploration, and at the end of all of our exploring, we'll to be arrive, to arrive at the same place where we started and know that place for the first time. That's what we're really doing. And so there is something about mindfulness which is waking, waking us up to knowing things for the first time. One of the other things we often make allusion to, isn't it? I'm sure you've heard it, you know, even if it's not in a mindfulness, MBSR, MBCT context, is beginner's mind. Yeah, the beginner's mind is bringing it back and knowing it for the first time, doing the practice for the first time. You know, when you hear those instructions you know, to feel the points of contact, to observe the breath, whatever, the, whatever they are, can we hear them for the first time? Our lives seem almost incredibly short, don't they? And you know, there's this phenomenon which I'm sure most of us have experienced or are experiencing, which is, you know, the older we get, the more life seems to speed up. Yeah? You know, the year goes by like that. When, when you were a child, it seemed kind of the summer holiday seemed endless, that sort of thing. You know, part of the reason for this is that we live in a world that becomes utterly familiar. Yeah. Which is why take you out of your context place you into a strange, different culture, you will often find time elongates again. Yeah. So when we're in our familiarized, all too familiarized context, is because how do we perceive that context? Well, we perceive it through the lenses of habit. We see it through the lenses of reactivity then life becomes stripped often of meaning. Yeah? The kind of, the sort of massive ennui that I see within Western culture is often to do with this familiarity. And what does that familiarity breed? Well, it breeds a search for stimulation, often in extremely destructive, and sometimes very gross ways of looking for stimulation and more and more stimulation because it's an addiction. And from the Buddhist perspective, when we're in this state, we live addictive lives. And I don't just mean the classical addictions. We live lives addicted to trying to find something that will make us feel alive. 
and yet we've missed the very, the very thing, in a sense, which is literally under our nose that makes us feel alive. Yeah. This breathing, tactile, motile body in this world with all of its experiences, and we overlook it. And we overlook it in search of something else or for some object in which we place a fantasy of happiness that actually we might never get at all. So just to draw this to conclusion, we're coming back. I'm sure you've got this by now. We're coming back in the meditative process to where we are right now at this moment. This is why we come back to the breath, to the body. We go back almost, we're going back to day one, aren't we? Yeah, the very first instructions. Why do we do this? Why do we keep coming back to the breath, and coming back to the body? Is because this is here now. This is our touchstone. But it's not just a touchstone that says, oh yeah, this body's in the present. This is a, this is a presence in this world that is literally always touched. And I could use this both literally and metaphorically, is always touched and being touched yeah? in this world. Yeah? Who's doing the touching when I touch one hand together? Which one's doing the touching? And yet, actually, that's our relationship with the world. Yeah? We touch each other. And I don't literally mean that physically, although I can mean that. And we are touched by others. Yeah, this is our relationship with it. And this is happening in the present moment. It happens in our ethical face-to-face -face relationships. Yeah. And yet we can so easily we can so easily be inattentive to that. We can be habitualized into just making the same old noises. In, that, in those processes. So we actually wake up to the lives that we have. We wake up to the problems that we have, we wake up to the habits, but we also wake up, and this is the point really of what I wanted to say this evening, we wake up to these enormous possibilities of having value and meaning in our lives which we constantly overlook and which is not settled in some big phenomena out there, but is just settled the meaning in the minutiae of our day-to-day -day ordinary experience of just being here. Yeah? And yet we can be so hooked on thinking there is a big meaning, and I go meaning hunting, you know, trying to capture it out there somewhere. And yet it's always here. It's always accessible. This was the message of mindfulness that I certainly got from a very, you know, from my training both in India and in Sri Lanka, was this is what mindfulness brought us back to, to the accessibility of the meanings which we live, which are right here, right now, accessible. And I'm sure all of you have experienced this to some degree, and certainly if you're teaching at this moment, some of your clients will have also access some of that they might not put it in those terms, they might never articulate it in this way, but that's probably what they're discovering. Just how little ordinary dimensions of our experience 
suddenly take on new meaning, not because they've radically taken on a new meaning, but because we've actually seen them with different eyes. We've actually tasted the cup of tea, or we might have tasted the cake. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your attention. Okay. Well, it's 25 past eight, so perhaps we'll come back at 22, 15 minutes. If, can I have a volunteer to ring the bell, if possible? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.